0: I received a, an email from a patron, Patron Tim. Patron Tim writes, Hey, Dr. Honda, I recently graduated with a master's in marriage and family therapy. I've listened to your podcast for the last year, and I found it to be incredibly helpful, as my supervision wasn't always productive or insightful. During my, in, during my internship, I gravitated toward narrative therapy, and at times used solution-focused interventions. I know you have a lot of requests, but would love to listen to your to a show on narrative therapy and your take on it. unquote. "Well, patron Tim, since you're a patron, your wish is my command. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about narrative therapy in detail, the history, the tenets, the way in which you behave as a narrative therapist, the goals that you're trying to look for, and some clinical examples. So I will be doing that. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode along with tens and I don't know how many, maybe a hundred other episodes that are just for patrons, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patrons get access to all the premium episodes on their phones and or on the Patreon page. When you become a patron, I'll let you know how to access those premium episodes. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. We love you very, very much. Thank you so much for being a patron. I really can't tell you how awesome it is to have a a group of people who are subscribing to this podcast. I never thought it was possible to actually make, you know, have a part-time job as a podcaster. So it's, it's, it's very gratifying, and it's all because of people like you. So thank you. All right. Narrative therapy. The history. Michael White. Uh, Born in Australia in 1948, baby boomer, working class. He was very influenced by his compassionate mother in contrast to his authoritarian military father. He was, uh, Michael White was really into fitness, like riding, he was famous for being, for riding his bike everywhere, I think. He met his wife, his future wife, at, at at a anti-war demonstration for Vietnam, for the Vietnam War in 1971. It's sort of interesting for me to think about there being anti-war demonstrations in places other than the United States, but of course it makes sense. Um, although, you didn't say where they met. Uh, I assume they met in Australia or, or New Zealand, but I don't know. Anyway, they met at an anti-war demonstration for the Vietnam War in 1971. That's very romantic. They, they got married later. Michael White, who is the founder uh, of narrative therapy uh, again born in australia um depressed at times he, he he's he was known for you know being depressed and when he was younger he went to therapists and hated all of his therapists all of his therapists were not helpful they labeled him as oh you have major depression here's your diagnosis and he said that he felt very small and humiliated by the way that therapy was being conducted at the time. And so later when he became a therapist himself, he decided to create a new form of therapy that was the opposite of that. Because of his own experiences as a depressed client, being humiliated, being labeled, being uh, focusing on all of his deficits, he decided to create the opposite of that, a model of therapy that focused on positives, that focused on... Uh, things that didn't involve the quote-unquote problem. In 1981, he met David Epstein at a therapy workshop. Uh, David Epstein is uh, from New Zealand, I believe. David Epstein and Michael White developed a famous, uh, deep friendship. They were longtime collaborators after meeting in 81. Throughout the 80s, they developed what would later be called narrative therapy, it became a world sensation, which is, you know, the thing to remember is that people are developing new models of therapy all the time, and only a, a very select few become world phenomena, become known to, you know, most everyone in the field. And the the thing about narrative therapy is that Michael White and David, David Epson were highly charismatic. I'll get to more of that in a second, but... In the 80s, they developed a theory along with countless other people who developed theories in the 80s. But it became a world sensation because of how charismatic they were, particularly in the family therapy world. And I really can't explain why the family therapy world took to narrative therapy because there's there's nothing... It, it has a family component to it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in family therapy. But for whatever reason, narrative therapy really took took... Uh, took root in the family therapy world, which is a minor, which is a, you know, a percentage of the overall psychotherapy world anyway. And many people at the time and later would reflect on how this theory seemed to come out of nowhere. You know, theories usually are believed to come out of prestigious places, you know, like Harvard or, or yeah, psychological camps of people, you know, you f- know, people who are established in the ivory tower of psychotherapy, so to speak. But Michael White and David Epstein seem to just be these two regular guys who were just, you know, social workers in Australia and New Zealand. And their, um, this, this, their theory was so well put together and so well practiced and and so successful that it just, you know, became a, a sensation. In a lot of ways, narrative therapy overshadowed some other therapies that I think probably should have been highlighted more, but I'll get more into that in a second. Um, It should be noted that narrative therapy was very similar to a number of other brief therapies that were coming out at the same time. Solution-focused therapy was very similar. Again, not a therapy that is inherently family-oriented, but for whatever reason, just really took off in the family therapy world. I, for whatever reason, family therapists traditionally are very open to the quote unquote postmodern uh, perspectives. They're, they're very open to the collaborative just perspectives. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know exactly why, but anyway, um, solution focus also came out of nowhere. It came out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and um, in some ways, solution-focused therapy and narrative therapy are pretty much the same thing. There's there's some slight nuances that are different, but uh, for me and the way that I conceptualize these two theories after studying them both for a long time, I, I really just consider them one of uh, – they're pretty much the same thing. Like if I saw a narrative therapist operating and I didn't know if they are solution-focused or narrative, I, I'm guessing that – I wouldn't be able to tell. I'd say, well, they're either narrative or solution focused. I can't really tell because they both those therapists tend to talk in the same ways. There's some classic statements that narrative therapists will say that'll give them away, and some classic solution focused therapist statements that will give them away. But anyway. So Michael White, David Epstein in Australia, New Zealand, they're they're extremely charismatic therapists. And if you if you ever get a chance to see them just, just talk in an interview they they come across just as very likable guys and people loved watching them they're it, 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 so if you haven't seen video then you don't know but i I'll, I'll just sort of give my impression they they come across as very soft and very attentive they're they're on the edge of their seat listening to people very intently they're not you know, leaning back in their chair and like analyzing, you know, they're, they're active. They're, they're right up with you. And you get the impression like they really are very interested in what the client is saying and not, and it's not a, it's not a game they're playing. They actually are very interested. So they really give off that vibe that they're and Michael white particularly is just, he's just a very nice guy. It's similar to Carl Rogers Carl Rogers came across like he was, you know, genuinely interested in what people had to say. And Michael White is very similar to that. So in some ways, Rogerian approaches are similar, although in in its basic tenets are, are really quite different. But anyway, um, and it should be noted that narrative therapy, it, it's more of a way of being similar to Rogerian th- therapies it's more of a way of being it's 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 not so much of a theory it doesn't you know psychodynamic theory has just volumes and volumes literal volumes and volumes of material at, that provide conceptual guidance to analyzing everything that happens in in the human realm whereas narrative therapy doesn't have much at all it's a it's it's a very elegant simple way uh, it's it's hard to achieve as a therapist because it requires a lot of paradigm shifts you have to go through but but it doesn't take a long time to describe i'll just put it that way i've been studying psychodynamic object relations psychoanalysis theory for the past 20 years and i still barely understand it <laughs> whereas narrative therapy you could study in a day basically and 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 understand it having said that Epstein famously said it took three years of dedicated practice working with other narrative therapists and getting supervision and training to to really get what narrative therapy was. And and I'll second that narrative therapy is easy to describe, but it's actually really hard to be a narrative therapist because it requires you to make, like I said, all these paradigm shifts. You You have to think in this very specific way And you have to be a specific way, and it's hard to do that. Some of you actually will email me, and you'll say to me that you think that I'm very uh, non-judgmental, or that I'm you know compassionate, and and you know that's very nice of you to say. But I I point that out because I, in my practice as as um, as a developing professional, have absorbed uh, a lot of different theories. I've I try to integrate all the theories, but perhaps the ones that have made me the most compassionate and the most non judgmental are the the brief therapies, the collaborative therapies, therapies like narrative therapy. It, if you study narrative therapy and really get into it, really practice it, really think about how it manifests in your very soul, you emerge with a uh, a way of seeing the world and being in the world that is very non-judgmental, which is counter to almost every cultural message that you get uh, outside of of that. Even within the field of psychotherapy, other forms of therapy have you know a fair amount of judgment and criticism toward people in it, not overtly, but if you really you know dive deep into narrative therapy, solution-focused therapy. Uh, collaborative therapies, you you will, uh, and, and you take to it well, it really divorces your personality from the need to look at everyone with a critical eye. Now, this isn't to say that I'm always compassionate. This isn't to say that I'm this perfect human being. This isn't to say that I don't judge people because I do. And I'm sure some of you listeners are like, Uh, Kirk, I wouldn't characterize you as non judgmental, I would characterize you as as super judgmental about certain things. And to that, I would absolutely agree with. Um, But anyway, my point is, is that narrative therapy is a is a way of being. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of seeing humans in this way that you, you know, might not have ever seen humans before. And it's a beautiful thing to and, and I'll get more into that in a second. Okay, so where are these two guys now? Well, Michael White died, unfortunately, in 2008. And David Epstein is still a therapist and a writer and a speaker in New Zealand. All right, so let's talk about the theory. Um, So like I said earlier, it takes a long time to really get it. I'm going to explain it in words to you listeners, but... You, If you really want to know it, know it in your bones, you you have to wrestle with it for a long time. So this isn't going to necessarily, you know, provide all that for you, obviously. Okay, so um, the theory is embedded or uh, has a lot of different umbrellas that it falls under in terms of overall umbrellas of psychotherapy and philosophical thought. For instance, it's considered one of the postmodern therapies. Uh, And I call, and I, I, I put postmodern in quotes because postmodernism, if you study it is pretty extreme. And and I, and although narrative therapy goes in a postmodern direction, I would not call it postmodern because it, uh, well, I I could go down a whole rabbit hole there, but anyway, it's often called a postmodern approach. When you look in different psychotherapy books there's a, there'll be different sections, and there'll be a postmodern section. And the postmodern therapies are typically narrative therapy and solution-focused therapy. Uh, it's also called a collaborative approach, or a strength-based approach, or a social constructionist approach, or a, or a constructivist approach. Uh, social constructionism and constructivism are two different things. They're similar but different. It's a brief therapy. It's sometimes associated with family therapy. Basically, a lot of these things like postmodernism, constructivism, social constructionism, the thing that they all have in common is that the, the the notion that we construct our own realities and we see the world in a particular way, and that dictates the way we behave and all that kind of stuff. So, you know... Postmodernism, instead of saying that, you know, uh, Democrats are this and Republicans are that, postmodernists, social constructionists would say that as a society, we decide what Democrats are and we decide what Republicans are. And depending on how you've constructed your reality within that culture, it will determine the way you see Democrats and the way you see Republicans. Uh, I, I, that analogy just popped into my head or that example popped in my head. And I'm glad that it did because it's so obvious, you know, you have half of Americans right now who see Democrats as wonderful people, you know, I'm generalizing here, but about half of Americans will look at Democrats like Barack Obama and, and just see, you know, just wonderful awesomeness. Uh, and they will see Republicans like Donald Trump as no joke, the evil empire. And then you have the another half of Americans that see the opposite. So how can two groups of people see the exact same data, the exact same thing, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, these are two people who exist in the world? How can they look at those two individuals and and see the direct opposite thing. Well, that is because people in both of those groups construct their reality. Now, in different ways. Now, the, uh, the construction is socially constructed, meaning that people don't construct in isolation. We construct together as a team. But, uh, but it's still constructed. And it, there's, no, there's no way to know which reality is right or wrong. And the postmodernists would say, just the question alone is ridiculous, because reality is w- what you construct of it. Um, taken to its extreme, it can get a little silly. You know, people will say, like, you know, this like, I'm, uh, there's a table in front of me. People will say, like, this table doesn't exist. It's just constructed in my mind. And it's like, okay, fine. But the table still does exist. There's a table in the universe that is in front of me right now. Uh, So let's let's not take it too far. But anyway, I digress. Uh, All right. What are the main tenets of narrative therapy? Here we go. The main thing. Here's what you want to take away if you want to know the theory. Basically, in a nutshell, the theory says that we ascribe meaning by plotting our experience into stories. And these stories shape our lives and relationships and problems and everything. So as we 're going through our life, we have these experiences like the third grade or uh, a girlfriend in, in the fifth grade or something and as we're going through these experiences as we're going through it and afterwards we construct a narrative that describes what we went through and this narrative or this these stories will that de- become reality to us. And then that dictates future perspectives and future behavior. For example, just going down this example that I threw out there, you're, you're a guy in the fifth grade and you have a girlfriend, you're heterosexual and things go a particular way. And, you know, you have a a fifth grade, silly (laughs) I mean, not silly, but you have a fifth grade version of romance and it lasts for a month and all your friends know about it and you're an item on the playground. And then she breaks up with you because she just, she says she doesn't want to have a boyfriend because she's too young or something. (laughs) Okay. Or her, she says that her dad made her break up with you, something like that. Um, so let's go with that. You know, the dad, may, you know, she comes to you on the playground, she says, "My dad told me I have to break up with you, so I'm breaking up with you." And you're like, "Okay, let's go back to playing tag and soccer and stuff." Well, during there are many different narratives that can be constructed uh by, uh, by this uh as a result of going through this story or this event. One person could emerge from this experience with a narrative that is like, wow, you know, I, I I liked her and I asked her to be my girlfriend and she said yes and that means that I'm a lovable person and we, you know, had these awkward moments and boy, I'm really living life and I'm glad that I did that and, uh, and then she broke up with me because her dad, you know, didn't want her to have a boyfriend. And, and, you know, I I guess that's okay. At least we had that one month together. Okay, that's a narrative. I just told you, you know, that's not reality. That's a way of looking at that event. And then later on, this very, you know, optimistic story will likely motivate me or whoever this person is, to ask another girl to be his girlfriend, right? Because he had this wonderful experience and he had this wonderful story and, and it was seen in a particular way. Now, another person could go through this event and emerge with a story like this. So I was very nervous about asking her out. And I didn't know what to do. And so I don't know, I just sort of found myself asking her out. I don't really know why I asked her out, but I did. And she said, yes, that she'd be my girlfriend. And it was a complete joke during that month because, I don't know, it just was really awkward and I was always nervous. And then she broke up with me and, you know, because she's a bitch and she was listening to – she's too much of a daddy's girl and her friends were meddling. And this is why I, I'm never going to ask another girl out again because look how ridiculous – that was. That was terrible. It's better to just not take that risk than to than to take that risk. Okay. So I hope that my two different constructed narratives demonstrate how we all construct narratives based on experience. Now, what people will often say is, are you saying that when I go through a bad experience, I should just I should just like look at it positively. No, that's not, it's much more complicated than that. And narrative therapy therapists would never say to someone, just think positive. You know, that is not what narrative therapy is about. My description here is a blunt force analogy to try to demonstrate the, the, the paradigm shift. But it is, uh, if you haven't made that paradigm shift, then it's hard to even imagine what I'm talking about. So, but I hope you understand the, you know, the basic gist, which is that we plot our experience into stories, and these stories shape our lives. And they shape our relationships, and they shape our viewpoint, and they shape our behavior, and they shape the way we see ourselves. As we build these narratives, we see the world in a particular way, which means we behave in a particular way. And this affects the, the next set of narratives that we build. You know, the guy who was very optimistic, the next relationship he's in, he'll likely approach it in a very open and optimistic way. Uh, and whatever happens, he'll likely, it'll confirm uh, how he, his optimism, whereas someone who, the the guy who was very negative about it and, and constructed a very negative story, the next time he goes, you know, out with a girl and things, you know, go this way or that way he's likely it's likely to affect the way he pro- so you know the optimistic guy he asks a girl out and he's like you know so do you want to be my girlfriend and she's like well I'm not quite sure and he's just and he's like well you know give it some thought you know I, don't worry you know I'll be you know let me know whenever you want because he has a narrative that people are good he has a narrative that things that he's lovable he has a narrative that girls are good. Now the negative guy with the negative story and narrative therapists would never label a guy negative. We would only just label a story as whatever we want to say. So the so the guy with the with the negative story, he approaches his next uh, interest, romantic interest, and says, So would you like to be my girlfriend? And she says, Well, I don't I don't know. And and then he walks away and says, Yep, just more evidence that I'm a bad person, and uh, just another uh, event to include in my overall narrative that I'm unlovable, that I can't trust girls, or I can't trust other people, and that romance sucks. So, uh, again, this is an extremely simplistic way of describing it, but uh, I hope it makes sense to you. Okay. So as narrative therapists, we're concerned not about The true story or the right story. We're only concerned with the preferred story is the language they use. The language I would use is the helpful story. So when I'm utilizing narrative therapies with people, I'm looking for a narrative that is helpful to their goals in life. And that's a very general kind of way of describing it. And I'll get more into that later. But but as a, a short example, if I had this negative fifth grader and he was in my office and he was talking about how he's not lovable and how he, girls can't be trusted and stuff, I, I might say, okay, well, let's, you know, tell me what happened. He's like, well, you know, I asked this girl out and, and she, uh, you know, she said yes, but then a month later she broke up with me and it's just another example of how I can't trust other people. Now, of course, not fifth graders would ever talk like that, but you know, let's say that's the gist of what he eventually tells me. Well, what a narrative therapist might do is they might say, "Oh, so tell me again about how you got the courage to ask her out." Oh well, I don't know. It I was I was you know I was pretty scared. I I wasn't sure if she liked me. So how did you get the courage up? I mean, how did you get that bravery up? He might like, oh I don't know, I just sort of just said, you know, just do it. Just you know, life is too short, just do it. Wow, you're a really brave guy. And then, you know, narrative therapist might say, So you didn't know if she liked you or not? No, I didn't know. You didn't know if she'd say yes or no to be your girlfriend. No, I didn't know. Well, but she did say yes. Yeah, she said yes. Wow. So, you know, you're you're clearly a likable guy. For for her to have said yes, um, that means that you you must be charming you must be uh, attractive or whatever <laughs> you say to fifth graders so the narrative therapist is 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 you know along the way as as the client is telling a story introducing new language into the story to change the story into one that is preferred or helpful now this is the next sort of phase of the analysis of this of these interventions is something that often people don't get involved in. And that is, is that just trying to be positive with people is in my mind, not a good enough justification for your therapy. You have to have some kind of overall purpose to all this. And with a fifth grader, what I, what I might surmise is I might say, well, if he has a, he, he has a long string of negative uh, narratives about himself, about other people. And this this negative narrative is going to hurt his self-esteem. It's going to hurt his chances of making friends and, and having relationships with people. It's going to uh, make him depressed. And so I think as a, as a therapist, I think it's probably in his best interest. And he is telling me that he wishes he had better self-esteem, that he have a more positive narrative, a more positive spin on the events that he's been through, and so that is why I am trying to insert positive language into his narrative. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. So uh, again, these narratives are socially constructed through interactions with other people. Together, we make these meanings. We're not. We don't construct things in isolation. And we adopt meanings given to us by society. Society has particular discourses. Discourses is the term they use. These these societal discourses affect how we story or narrativize, is the word I use. Well, I, I, I don't know if other people use this word, but I use the word narrativize, that we narrativize our lives. So society has particular discourses that affect how we narrativize our lives. And... We all, therapists, clients, need to question that link between the discourses and our stories. And we need to restory our lives in a more beneficial, preferred, helpful way uh, when the societal discourses interfere with that. For instance, I am a black person, therefore I'm a criminal, I'm a subhuman being. That is a societal discourse. And through narrative therapy or you know narrative self help you can restore your life in a way that doesn't acknowledge the uh, reality and the discourse that society is trying to build now a lot of this overlaps with other kinds of therapies existential therapy because it involves meaning cognitive therapy because it has to do with uh, perspective and the automatic thoughts you have and the kinds of things you you tell yourself. It has to do with schema therapy and um, solution-focused therapy because it's very strength-based. So I just want to point that out. But anyway, it has a lot to do with meaning. The the part that I think is the reason why it appealed to family therapists was because Michael White, David, David Epstein were very interested in the way families constructed narratives for themselves. A lot of times when a family... Uh, well, all the time, families will will generate narratives amongst the family members, and the family members will share a narrative. You know, like Jenny is is the idiot, and Johnny is the fuck up, and Mom is the dumb one, or whatever. And and these narratives, White and Epstein noticed, were some of the reasons why people had problems to begin with. And so often what is helpful is to have the entire family change their narrative. You can't just have one person change their narrative. You have to change the narrative in the, in the whole family. Uh, Another uh, tenet of narrative therapy is that they're very interested in strengths and they're not interested in problems or deficits Another tenet regarding how they see personality is they see the personality as forming by narratives. This is one of the big differences between narrative therapy and solution focused, in that solution focused therapy has no notion of personality. They actively reject the notion that a personality even is, exists or needs to be talked about. Narrative therapists have a, a very small uh, definition of personality, which is that it's shaped by narratives. Okay. Narrative therapists are not interested in diagnosis. They're not interested in assessing people. They're not interested in these labels because they believe that these labels of diagnosis are actually keep people in the problem. So you will never hear a pure narrative therapist talk about major depression or even schizophrenia. They don't. They, they think that these labels are harmful, and so they they don't talk about diagnosing people. And peer narrative therapists would hate me because I will frequently talk about, you know, personality disorders and this sort of thing, and narrative therapists would never entertain such notions. Narrative therapists, they assume people are healthy. They assume everyone is a healthy person, and the only people who present as unhealthy are people who have narratives that are not helpful, and all you got to do is change narratives. Now, no narrative therapist would say changing your narrative is easy, but it's an easy description of something that takes a, takes time to do. You know, essentially, it's like you you can't change who you are. You can't change the events you've been through. You can't change the fact that sometimes you're in a bad mood. But you can change the story you tell yourself about it. And through changing that story, not only does it just feel better to have a preferred story, but it can sometimes completely erase the problem. You know, for instance, someone who is depressed. And so so Johnny, 16-year-old boy, depressed. Parents bring him in. Johnny's depressed. Everyone's talking. You know, we went to a previous psychiatrist. They said, Johnny you know has major depression he's on he's on medication and we don't know what to do with him he's doing bad in school he doesn't have any friends he has low self esteem and so the narrative therapist is completely uninterested in all that language now the narrative therapist will listen to that but the narrative therapist will say okay so tell me tell me more you know there's a lot of questions in narrative therapy there's a lot of like tell me more about your experience what is it like and um, they'll ask questions to try to move people away from the problem. So they might start, uh, they might ask the family, okay, well, if the depression had a name, what would we call it? And the family's like, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, if, if, we, if we had to call this depression a thing, you know, if we had to call it a name, what, would, what name would we give it? You know, and the seven, the 16-year-old boy might say something like, uh, the black monster. Okay, the black monster. So describe the black monster to me. Everyone, I want everyone to describe the black monster to me. And then Johnny starts saying, well, the black monster gets me down. The black monster won't go away when I yell at it. The mom is saying, the black monster is dragging our family down. The father says, I I hate the black monster. Okay, so now the narrative therapist has successfully engineered a languaging system that no longer is pathologizing Johnny and is now pathologizing a thing, this black monster thing. And the problem no longer exists within Johnny. The problem is now this black monster. And Johnny is also fighting against the black. Everyone's fighting against the black monster. It's no longer parents against Johnny. It's family against black monster. And by labeling it as such, Johnny can now have a, the family can now have a new narrative where Johnny's a good guy. The black monster is something that we all hate. And so, just that narrative shift can sometimes be enough. And I've seen it happen to free families and individuals from the shackles of the problem so that they could start moving forward in a positive way, in a way that is flexible and a way that frees them from the problem, so to speak. Now, some of you might be going, that's ridiculous. There's no way you can cure depression by just calling something a black monster. And to that, I say, yes, I agree. Dogmatic narrative therapists would say, uh, yes, you can, but I'll tell you, uh, in the real world, when you're practicing with real clients, uh, no no one therapy works for everything f- with all clients. And so, uh, so yeah, it, it's it's just what I, I'll tell you what I do, <laughs> and what I do is I try to learn every single theory and every single form of therapy in depth. And when I feel uh, inspired and or I analytically believe that a particular theory is the best thing to put forward, then that's what I put forward and I see if it works. So there are times when I believe narrative therapy is best given the situation. And so I will utilize that form of therapy with people. I'll integrate it into my being and it will come out of me, hopefully in a way that is congruent with me. And I'll see if it works. Um, Or I'll I'll infuse narrative therapy into my psychodynamic approaches. And so it's all just a, a mix of things that I'm trying with people. And so in that way, no one therapy can do everything. You know what I mean? All right, let's talk about treatment. We've talked about the theory. Let's talk about treatment now. I've already talked a fair amount about treatment, but to get specific here... Again, as I said earlier, the main thing when you're thinking about narrative therapy is we want to help people to alter or rewrite their stories or their narratives with new meanings. We want to reauthor their lives with new preferred storylines, new preferred narratives in the effort of promoting change. People come to therapists for, you know, they're depressed, they're anxious they feel bad about themselves, they don't like where their life is, they are upset about their job, they're upset about their relationships, they don't know what to do with themselves, they're searching for meaning, they think that they'll never succeed, or, you know, I'm just throwing out different kinds of presenting problems. And narrative therapy works well with these kinds of presenting problems. Someone shows up with schizophrenia and narrative therapy is not going to take away the schizophrenia and narrative therapists would never say narrative therapy would take away the schizophrenia, but narrative therapy would help a family in terms of how it stories the schizophrenia, so to speak within the person. You know, one story is our brother is becoming schizophrenic And that means everything is terrible, and we're trapped, and there's no solutions. So that's one story. Another story is, my brother is developing what psychiatrists call schizophrenia. But he's still a good person. And we're still a good family. And this will bring us closer together. And this just changes our story from one version to a new version. So that narrative therapist would absolutely be involved in that. Anyway, So the main thing is, is narrative therapists, they help people alter or rewrite their stories to a preferred in a preferred way to promote change. You want clients to leave the session with a new description of themselves and a new description of the events that they've been through. Again, it's easy to explain this and it sounds really simple, but it's actually fairly complicated to do with clients but it it can be quite powerful. And to some extent, a lot of different therapies are involved in doing this. Cognitive therapy is involved in doing this to some extent. A lot of the family therapies, uh, obviously any of the brief therapies, but even psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, relational theories, uh, therapies are involved in helping people to change their narratives. They might not use that language, but it certainly is. So It's not unique to narrative therapy, but it certainly is the central feature of it. Narrative therapists try to figure out what the story is of the client or the family. They're they're trying to figure out what the family is telling themselves, what story they are telling themselves. And then the narrative therapist, therapist very gently tries to alter, work collaboratively with the family to alter that story. Um, in, in preferred ways. And I'll get more into the specifics on that. Narrative therapists are trying to figure out how the problem is perpetuated and how the problem has so much power. Narrative therapists, you'll hear them talk about basically with the notion that, you know, people say, you know, Johnny's depressed. And narrative therapists will instantly be trying to figure out why the family is storying the situation in this particular way. Why is the story of this family, uh, Johnny is depressed? Why is that the topic sentence of this family's story? Why isn't the topic sentence something else? Uh, Why is Johnny's energy level such the central focus? And how is, uh, and what, for what reasons is the, Uh, there's the story being perpetuated by the story, by the family. Um, Also, it should be noted that, you know, true and good narrative therapists would never force a new story on a client. They would create collaboratively an atmosphere in which a new story emerges from the client. The the most talented narrative therapists will actually – help a client generate their own new narrative. They would never tell a family, boy, it really seems like your story is this. And it, it, you know, why couldn't it be this? You know, you'd, you'd never hear a true narrative therapist say that. True narrative therapists just through their gentle questioning and gentle uh, highlighting of different kinds of things and of saying, you know, well, uh, so before I remember you talking this way, and now you're kind of talking this way. It seems like maybe a new narrative is emerging. Can you tell me more about that? You know, and you're just sort of encouraging this the client to develop a new narrative. True narrative therapy it, clients would never walk away saying, "Boy, that therapist really helped me by developing my new narrative." You know, that you know, true narrative therapy clients would probably see themselves as the architects or authors of their own stories. But anyway, also a, another major tenet that often is talked about. It's a, it's a pithy quote, but it's the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem. I talked about this earlier in terms of, you know, the black monster it's, you know, Johnny's not the problem. The black monster is the problem. The depression is the problem. And so, you're trying you're always trying to externalize the problem. They call it, you know, externalizing the problem. Instead of having it being internal to Johnny, you want to externalize the problem. You want to separate the problem from the individuals. You want to deconstruct the problem so the so the problem no longer has power. And it takes the shame away, it gives families something to fight other than the person, and it gives the problem less less power, you know. Okay, another thing that narrative therapists and Michael White were known for is writing therapeutic letters. This is a very powerful technique for therapists, and it's something that I think is underutilized. I've done it before, and, to, and it, it's, just, it's just a wonderful way to be as a therapist, and let me explain. So in the same way that you are as a narrative therapist and that you are Thinking about the positives, you're you're um, speaking in the language of the client. You at the end of a session might write a letter to a client, and back in the day, they would write physical letters. They wouldn't write email, and so they would write a letter out, handwrite it out, and it might say something like this. So, you know, Johnson family, I just finished up a session with you guys. And I just thought I'd take some time to think about and, uh, this session and to, to write my thoughts to you. The first thing that I think that comes to mind is just the resilience that I see in your family. You've been through a lot of external generated problems and internal problems, and you've persevered through it all. In my mind the 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 word that comes to mind is survivors that's what comes to mind for me when i think of your family i think of the the grace in which you have survived things the second thing that comes to mind is the the deep love that i see within each of you that may, that might not get expressed all the time but i but i see it in your in each of your big heart that that you have inside your chest, (laughs) I'm making this up as I go, Um, you know, I see how much, how much love you have the capacity for love that you have for, for each other. I know it's hard for you to express that sometimes, but, but I see that. And I, I really am um, heartened when I when I see that, okay, but so you just continue and you write maybe a couple more paragraphs. Now, this is what you would write, you know, and and you would write it genuinely. You wouldn't just make stuff up. Um, You, someone else, another, uh, you know, a a non-narrative therapist would, you know, if they met with this family and then read this letter, they'd be like, wow, you're really, you're really putting a positive spin on this because, I mean, the family is completely dysfunctional and they, they can't communicate. You know, this is the way therapists will talk sometimes. This is a completely dysfunctional family. They can't communicate. They'll, you know, they're stubborn. They are undifferentiated, and they're, you know, they've they've been traumatized, and uh, they're abusing each other. You know, pointing to all the negatives. Well, the narrative therapist would say, "Yeah, you know, I see all that, and I also see this. I see people who love each other who are having a hard time." And I see survival and perseverance, and I see c- courage, and I see strength. And um, and it's not just making up positives. Now, the idea with all this, with this therapeutic letter, is imagine getting a letter from your therapist, and how powerful that would be. How you would read it over and over again. Um, it It's a powerful technique that makes therapy potentially a lot briefer than it would be otherwise. You know, the amount of acceleration that you can gain from a, uh, you know, a powerful intervention like that can be quite great. So, so narrative therapists would write these sorts of um, therapeutic letters. David Epson was uh, famous for that. Um, also, uh, like I said, Narrative therapists would never use diagnoses. They would steer people away from labels. Also, they're not interested in goals. Narrative therapists, you know, they'll honor people's goals. You know, someone says, I'm coming in because I want to fix, I want to reduce Johnny's depression. So they'll honor that, but they'll never really buy into it. A narrative therapist will never say, okay, that's the goal. I'm going to reduce Johnny's depression. Because what a narrative therapist is already thinking is, this... This definition of the so-called problem is embedded, is a, is a symptom of a narrative that this family is telling itself. And once we change the narrative, then the, the quote-unquote problem will either go away or, or it'll change to something else. And so, sure, I'll focus on Johnny's depression for now, but I'm going to target the family narrative and, and we'll see where that gets us. They work on projects, not problems. So again, it's more positive spin. Because language is everything. Social constructionism, when you, when you narrativize your life, language is everything. And so problem has a negative connotation to it, whereas project has, has a positive connotation to it. So they'll say, okay, well, you know, so it sounds like your family's project is to blah, blah, blah. Another tenant of narrative therapy, along with all the collaborative brief therapies, is a deep respect for the client you approach people from a not knowing stance, you're very curious, you honor their stories, you they use the term narrative therapists use the term co explorers, not all narrative therapists, but some. So you're exploring together with the with the client, you use the client's language when possible, you don't introduce your own uh, lingo, you, you, you try to figure out the client's language, and you use their language. As a narrative therapist, you're trying not to be an expert or an authority. You avoid all messages that you're an expert and you know more. You're trying to put the client in a space where they feel like they're the expert and they're the people who know what's going on. You're asking the client to inform you about what the reality is, not the other way around. This empowers a client, it puts a client in the driver's seat, and makes the client feel respected. It avoids situations where the client feels like you're not listening. And so, uh, all the collaborative brief therapies, solution focus included, have this kind of stance. Now, this isn't to say that psychodynamic people or cognitive therapists or behavioral therapists can't also be this way, but uh, it's very uh, much a central feature. Of narrative therapy. Whereas with cognitive therapy, it's not a central feature of that, even though you could use that stance with clients as a cognitive therapist. Okay. Um, Another thing about narrative therapy, as I've been already saying, is they like to point out the positives, they like to point out successes whenever possible. They also like to what they call identify unique outcomes. Unique outcomes are the exact in my estimation the exact same concept as exceptions in solution focused therapy, so for example you uh, you have a depressed client and you get a depressed client to talk about their quote unquote recharging episodes and how the client is able to get things done in spite of stress and pressures from others so instead of focusing on Oh, tell me about your depression. How often are you depressed? What are the symptoms of depression? You turn it around and say, when are you feeling, uh, when are you not depressed? And you, might, and, and you might even use the term, you might even relanguage it as a therapist as a recharging episode. You know, you're not depressed, you're recharging. <laughs> you know, you're, you're building up energy so that you can expend it later. It's a totally different way of looking at one's life, right? And the narrative therapist will try to point toward, okay, well, you're telling me about your problems, but, you know, there's got to be some successes in there, so, you know, help help me understand the full extent of your story here. You know, when when are you getting things done? And when, are you, when do you have energy? I'm not wording it quite right, but I think you get the picture. And then once the person says successes and positive things, then the narrative therapist highlights that similar to solution-focused therapy. Also narrative therapists are interested in ceremonies and in ritual. The way I like to put it is intentional constructed meaning. When we go through rituals like a funeral or a graduation ceremony or a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a, um, you know, a baptism These are all ceremonies that have a lot of meaning in it. There's a lot of uh, socially constructed meaning to someone outside of the culture. They would have no idea what you're doing. If you go to some other country and some other culture in the world and you see a ceremony and you have no idea what's happening, it doesn't hold the meaning for you. It's it only holds meaning by it being socially constructed. And so as narrative therapists, you can create a culture of meaning and a ceremony that has meaning and a ritual that has meaning with a family or with a client. For instance, say they want they you know they want to terminate therapy. You know they they feel like yeah you know I feel better now I've reached my goals and um, I think I, I'm ready to take a break from therapy. Well, a narrative therapist might really want to accentuate the success that this client has been through, that this client has has achieved by having a graduation from therapy ceremony where you know they you know you, you just you work collaborative with the clients. like okay well let's let's have a graduation from therapy ceremony you might invite friends and family and there will be a speech and there's a trophy and there's a you know whatever he's the valid Victorian of graduation from therapy or something this is a, an intentional, act to create a narrative around a particular transition in life. And instead of just terminating therapy and no one knowing it and it just sort of drifting away, you, you know, you really accentuate it. My guess is, is that all of you can remember the various different ceremonies that you've been through weddings, graduations, funerals. These are highly memorable events and there's a reason for that. I think it's natural for us to, to remember these kinds of things, but it also just has to do with the tremendous amount of meaning that gets wrapped up in these ceremonies. And we don't have to be limited to the few ceremonies that are built into our Western uh, lives. We can create other ones. Okay. Other kinds of uh, just specific questions that narrative therapists might ask. They might ask a client, tell me your story, you know, maybe even just tell me your whole life story. So narrative therapy might just, you know, tell me your story. Another question they might ask is, how do you want your next chapter to be? So in this question, you're inviting a client to think about how they want their next story to be. And this will gravitate them toward behaviors to build that story, right? Instead of focusing on the past which narrative therapists aren't really interested in that much. They're more interested in about the future. Another question, what name would you give the problem? We talked about this earlier in terms of the black monster. Another question, I want to know you outside of the problem. Can we talk about that for a while? So again, this is trying to look for those unique outcomes, those exceptions. You're trying to, because people might, you know, not all your clients, but some clients might sit down and really focus on the problems You have a mom that's complaining about her daughter, her defiant daughter, and that's all she talks about. And eventually you might say, okay, I feel like I have a pretty good picture of that. You know, Jane, I really want to understand you and your story outside of your problems with your daughter. I feel like I I get a pretty good picture of that. I I want to know more about you. I want to know your story outside of that. Can we talk about that for a while? And by doing this, you're sending a message that, this isn't the whole you, and this isn't all that I'm interested in. And how about we talk about other things that are, you know, other parts of your life, trying to accentuate that. Now, having said that, some people might say, but what if the client really wants to talk about their daughter? And to that I say, yeah, that's legitimate. And it's, kind of, it's a legitimate criticism of narrative therapy is that if it's not done well, it can make clients feel like you're not really interested or you're not really listening and that you might even be judging them for talking about a problem that's really getting them down. And, you know, when you're suffering, it's hard not to talk about your suffering and, and for sure it might help to talk about something else, but sometimes for someone to just just discount that and say, yeah, let's talk about something else. It could feel dismissive. So I don't know if that's inherent to narrative therapy, but, it, it, it's a risk with narrative therapy. Other sorts of questions might be, what do you love about life? So again, instead of focusing on the negatives, you're focusing on the positives. Um, another question is, was this session helpful or not? Narrative therapists and all the brief therapists are generally very interested at the end of sessions or periodically to ask the client how they feel about the therapist and how they feel about therapy, because this makes it much more collaborative. It makes the client much more uh, involved in their own therapy because they can tell the therapist, look, I didn't like this session. And it also demotes you as a therapist because you're, you're asking the client to evaluate you, which makes you kind of under the client. So you're trying to you're trying to lower your rank, which Uh, by its nature, raises the rank of the client, uh, in some instances. Uh, Another question that I often will ask clients is, how can we perpetuate your success? So with this question, you're trying to highlight, one, that they've had a success, but two, you're trying to highlight the behaviors that led them to that success. Instead of looking at the problems, you're focusing on the solutions, Uh, this is probably particularly uh, uh, frequent when I'm working with my couples. Because inevitably with couples, we enter a phase where they sit down on my couch and they say, you know what? This past few weeks has been fine. We haven't had any fights. And what some therapists will do is they'll panic because they'll think, oh, well, my clients don't need me. Or what, what do I talk about if I don't have a problem? And, one of the best things you could talk about is, okay, that's awesome. I congratulate you. How did you achieve that success? Let's talk about what you did to not have a fight and to have a good few weeks. You know, What did you do specifically? Let's look at the various different whys in the road and the different decisions you made to make it so that you would sit down on this couch and say that everything's going well. So that's a narrative therapy thing. It's also a solution-focused thing. Another question that narrative therapists might ask is how do we keep the problem alive? How how do you guys how are you keeping the problem alive? Let's let's really look at that. So again, you're trying to take power away from the problem. Okay. So so that's in a nutshell what narrative therapy is in terms of treatment. Now, let's look at, let's look at the critiques. We've already talked about one. But let me talk about my my main a critique of narrative therapy and narrative therapists is that narrative therapists are often in denial of the limitations of the model. You know, uh, I've read interviews and read articles and seen narrative therapy, narrative therapists, experts in the field interviewed and stuff. And inevitably they'll be asked the question, well, what are the limitations of narrative therapy? And Almost all the time, the response is there are no limitations. <laughs> you know, narrative therapy can do anything, and I I always just think uh, it's 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 kind of one. It's ridiculous. All, all you know, therapy in general has limitations, and particular models of therapy absolutely have limitations. And to be in denial of that is irresponsible and just not recognizing that all things have a con to it. All things have a limitation. It's, it's just uh, impossible to have a therapy model that is perfect. So you should be able to identify and them and the experts of a particular model should be the best people to ask when it comes to those limitations. They should know the limitations forwards and backwards, right? So, uh, that's one of the things that annoys me about narrative therapists that I've come into contact with is that they're quite dogmatic about their uh, their model and they're quite in love with it and it's almost it's almost cult like and they get defensive uh, maybe because they're marginalized narrative therapy isn't one of the biggies and so maybe they feel particularly defensive I don't know but um, but that that bothers me. Now that has nothing to do with the model itself. It has more to do with the the experts and the and the figures in the field. But um, but uh, yeah. So so that you know that that kind of bugs me. And really, um, uh, that's not uh, only with narrative therapy. Uh, really, all the schools will have experts that will talk like that. Um, all the brief therapies will have experts that will talk like that. I I've been to trainings for solution focused therapy and, you know, inevitably someone in the audience will raise their hand and say like, well, you know, solution focused therapy. I, I went, I went to a uh, a training on solution focused therapy for, for people who are grieving and it was a, it was a really, it was a great training. But at the end, someone said like, so, but you know, th- it, it, grief therapy is bigger than sushi focus therapy, right? I mean, sushi focus therapy is great, but it seems like it would miss some things. And the trainer said, no, no, no. sushi focus therapy can, you know, it does it all. There's there's no limitations to what it, what it, you know, can do. And I just thought, oh boy, <laughs> you, should, you should always be able to uh, provide the limitations. Um, psychoanalytic people can be dogmatic. Behaviorism people can be very cult-like. At times, uh, it just has to do with kind of the history of psychotherapy, and that uh, a lot of the various different schools have been fighting since day one, and so uh, they can get quite defensive. I mean, the question: if you're one of those people, if you're one of those dogmatic people, you just have to ask yourself: is anything perfect in the world? <laughs> is anything a perfect uh, answer? Does is is therapy is therapy in general perfect? Well, if therapy in general is not perfect, then your model, by definition, also is not perfect, <laughs> and so um, it's important to be humble around that, and and not and not to come across as defensive, and um, a disciple or a I don't know what you call it, but anyway, I'm sure I have problems with stuff like that too, and I, I try to stop that. But anyway, so other critiques are you now. Uh, before I move on I just want to say I totally appreciate narrative therapy and I totally use narrative therapy in my practice because narrative therapy has this cult like following whenever I criticize any of the cult like following kinds of therapies I will always get a backlash online now this is only going to patrons so maybe it'll be different but but my episode on Ericsson that I made like five years ago you know I Frequently, to this day, I'll still get messages from angry people. And in the episode, I was talking about Erickson, which is a brief therapy, or he's kind of the grandfather, considered the grandfather of the brief therapies. I talk about Erickson, and I talk about how much I appreciate him and how I um, utilize his, you know, his things that he introduced, while at the same time, I provide a critique of this book that Jay Haley wrote about him, in which some questionable things were raised in this book, and um, people online will, you know, so even though I'm saying I appreciate it and I use it, uh, and but I'm providing a little bit of a critique here, people online will just completely hate on me. They'll be like, "You don't know what you're talking about. How, how do you how do you even call yourself someone who could be able to evaluate that?" And I'm thinking. Oh, I don't know. I'm a professor in family therapy for the past 20 years, and I actually lecture about Erickson, so, and I've read a lot of Erickson, and I've read a lot of commentary on Erickson, so I don't know. Maybe I'm one of the possible people on the planet who can comment on Erickson, and it's just, it's just bizarre to see, and so I, I want to say to you if, you, if there's any narrative acolytes out there, I use it. I appreciate it wholeheartedly. And there are critiques. Okay. Another critique I have of narrative therapy, and really all of the therapies that consider themselves to be postmodern, is that they shouldn't be called postmodern. <laughs> um, postmodernism is a, when, if you study postmodernism, it's a very specific philosophy that I don't think really applies to therapeutic models very well. Um, you know, for instance, if you're truly postmodern, then when someone comes to you and they all they want to do is talk about a problem, then you would appreciate that reality and you'd be like, okay, well, that's what you want to do. You're going to talk about your problem. But narrative therapists will absolutely be trying to get people away from talking about the problem. There are certain tenets about narrative therapy that is generated from the theory and therefore is generated from the therapist And postmodernism is often talked about as being purely generated from the client. But narrative therapy is not purely generated from the client. I'm not really describing this very well. But anyway, I just don't like calling it postmodern. Calling it collaborative, I think, is wonderful. I think that is accurate and attractive, I think. So calling it collaborative is great. Postmodern, I don't don't like so much. I think that they call it postmodern because... It sounds cool. (laughs) It sounds cooler or more technical than collaborative. Um, So I don't know. It's just my opinion. Also, another critique I have, it's not so much a critique, but I find that it's um, worth commenting on anyway, that narrative therapy is very similar to cognitive therapy, very similar to schema therapy, and very similar to solution-focused therapy. Now, some people would absolutely yell at me if I said narrative therapy was similar to cognitive therapy. Well, it really just depends on what you think of as cognitive therapy. The way I use cognitive therapy is, is actually almost indistinguishable from the way I use narrative therapy. Cause I don't use, you know, automatic thoughts and that kind of stuff when it comes to cognitive therapy theories. I tend to use the, um, the general gist of cognitive therapy. And so it, perspective and the way you see things and how that affects your problems and how that can be u- changed to uh, affect your life in a positive way, to me is is cognitive therapy and it's narrative therapy and it's schema therapy and so uh, um, that's not so much a critique it's just I guess a comment. Another uh, critique of narrative therapy is the lack of assessment. Narrative therapists, along with all the other brief therapies are famous for not caring about assessment they don't care about diagnoses they actively work against that now there's a there's absolutely a benefit to that as i talked about earlier but there's a there's a disbenefit to that too and that is disbenefit a word i often use disbenefit (laughs) as a word but is that a word Uh, anyway not assessing people can lead to problems and i think uh, you know, just the nature of that sentence, I think, speaks for itself. Now, pure narrative therapists would say, no, that's not true. You don't need to assess in the traditional sense to help people. But, um, but I don't know. I, I think it's helpful to assess. There's a, there's a lot of benefit to assessing. Um, and to ignore that piece of the clinical work, I think, is potentially not serving your, all your clients uh, in the best way. Now, again, having said all that, I totally appreciate narrative therapy and I use narrative therapy in my practice. So, just providing a critique does not mean that I'm saying it should not be used or it's not great because it is great. Another critique is that it's counter to using medical insurance. You know, it's not practical in that way because if you're a pure narrative therapist, you don't diagnose. Well, if you don't diagnose, you can't use people's medical insurance. And maybe that's cool with you and many, many, Private practitioners don't care about insurance, but many clients can't pay for therapy unless they use their medical insurance, and therefore you have to diagnose, and so therefore you have to, you know, potentially go against your narrative therapy ideals. Also, there are, there is a real thing called depression, and there is a real thing called PTSD. Now, what we, you know, how we narrativize depression and PTSD in particular individuals is you know, uh, particular, but to, to, there are some true believers of narrative therapy that will say PTSD doesn't even exist or depression doesn't exist or anxiety doesn't exist. You just have a story that tells you that you're anxious. And I find that to just be the stupidest thing I ever heard because I Kirk have had anxiety in my life. And if anyone ever told me that, I was just telling myself a story that made me anxious. I'd be like, you're stupid (laughs) because, uh, you know, my anxiety is, is a bodily experience. It's not a story I tell myself, you know? And so, um, now good narrative therapists would never say such a thing, but I have heard narrative and other brief therapists say things like that. They, they don't believe that any of the DSM diagnoses are real. And I just find that to be inaccurate and potentially discounting to people. Also, it can, uh, another critique is when narrative therapy is done badly, it can be used in a very forceful way. And I've seen this where uh, sort of ineffective or ill trained narrative therapists will try to force narratives down people's throats. You know, they'll say, you need to change your story. (laughs) And uh, it's just, you know, bad narrative therapy. Again, having said all this, I'm just saying critiques. I totally use narrative therapy in my practice. Totally appreciate it. If every therapist at least integrated some of narrative therapy into their practice, the world would be a better place. All right. So let me provide some examples of exactly how this works out with clients. So the first two examples are made up, and the third one is an actual client of mine. So the first uh, example here is we have a woman, and she's sexually assaulted as an adult. And society, her friends, the police, they label her as a victim. They use that language. And through her interactions with herself and with other people, she starts to narrativize herself as a helpless victim, just like all the other victims. Well, she goes to therapy with a narrative therapist, and the narrative therapist detects that she has this destructive story, that she's constructed this very destructive story, that she's just like everyone else. There's nothing unique about her, and she's just another victim. So the therapist sets out collaboratively to reauthor her story and relabel her not as a victim but as a survivor. And the narrative therapist asks the client for her unique outcomes. What was different about her ability to survive? What was different about her story? And the client restories her experience as a story of unique survival, as a story of a strong woman who persevered, and as a and as a person who will start to advocate for other survivors. So I've just encapsulated, you know, months of therapy into a short description, but that's just one one way of describing what narrative therapy is going for. Another situation is we have a family comes to therapy and they say, our boy has ADHD and he's failing at school. He's been assessed as someone who has ADHD and he takes medication for that. And all of our problems... Stem from the fact that he's failing at school, and the teachers call us sometimes to say that he's not doing well. Well, a narrative therapist hears this and tries to uh, restory this family's this family's life instead of a f- family that defines themselves as having a screw up son with ADHD that has you know this disease called ADHD tries to collaboratively with the family, build a new story. One that involves the, uh, you know, putting more emphasis on how he likes to have fun with the family and how he's spontaneous and how he has a good sense of humor. And so this, the family enters therapy with this story that's very negative and the, and maybe they leave therapy with this story of themselves as being a good family with an energetic kid who likes to have fun, who, you know, isn't doing fantastic with his grades, but you know, that's not the sole purpose in life. So that's another thing is like, what's the meaning of the fact that he's not getting good grades in school? What's the story of that? Is the story, the societal discourse that, your family is a failure and that you failed as a, as a, as a parent, or is the story that you're raising a good kid who, you know, for now isn't getting great grades, but he, you know, gets along well with other kids and he likes to laugh and, and he's a loving, caring person. This is something that I absolutely will work on with a lot of clients. Our society has this discourse that says that if a kid isn't doing well in school, everything has failed. When I, I, you know, me, the way that I story those situations is, grades have very little to do with the happiness that you will experience in life. And to say that to a family, or even just out loud, is like a poc- is just like, I don't know, it's just like a terrible thing to say in our society. We're talking about like grades aren't important because our Western society is completely obsessed with grades. It's crazy, people. Show me a study that says that someone can't be happy uh, with getting Bs and Cs, or even getting Fs in in their in their class. Now, what our society does is, oh, you you know, you didn't graduate from high school, therefore you're a loser. Therefore, I'm not going to hire you because you don't have any any worth. Well, that's not the fault of the person. That's the fault of society for not valuing what people can offer. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't be educated. But what I'm saying is the amount of uh, emphasis that, you know, when you, when you have a pie chart and 99% of the chart is, is filled with grades, there's something wrong. We should be emphasizing other things like how nice they are, how caring they are, how collaborative they are, how funny they are, how creative they are, how, um, you know, I don't know, innovative they are, how, how how much they enjoy life they are. I don't know. So there's a lot of different things that I think go into the building of a happy life and, you know, grades, I suppose is one of them, but there's many other things. Okay. Soap box, uh, done. Okay. The final examples of an actual client. And as always, whenever I talk about clients, I, change details or leave out details so that they can't be identified. But this is a real client. It's a couple. First session, they come in, and they're demoralized. They tell me that they fight, quote-unquote, all the time. And I listen to them as they talk about how much they fight. But I'm looking for strengths. And whenever I talk with particularly novice therapists about looking for strengths, they often go to these very simple ones like, you know, like I'll ask a novice therapist, they'll say, you know, give me a strength of your client. And they'll say, oh, well, um, you know, they're going to therapy. That's a strength. And I'll be like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. That's a strength. And um, they, you know, they've been through a lot. Right. And they survived. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's a strength. But tell me more. And, Because as a society, maybe as a profession, we're not used to identifying strengths, it's really hard for clinicians to actually notice strengths and to genuinely feel them inside their bodies, you know. Uh, Strengths are are hard, and it takes practice. And you really have to listen to someone's narrative to be able to pick out strengths. And you really have to see things in a positive, strength-based way in order to see strengths. And that takes practice. You have to you have to learn. You have to watch other people that are good at it in order to to be good at it. it takes time, but anyway. So uh, you know, I listen, but I'm looking for these strengths, and I really listen, and I ask a lot of questions. And after a while with this client, I discovered that after a long fight, so they're telling me about these you know this long fight that they had, and all I'm hearing is negativity. Right? They're just like, yeah, we fought, and you know he wasn't listening and he like you know slammed the door and i turned to him and he was like yeah and she um you know was just nagging me all the time and she's always on my back and and i'm listening and i'm and i'm i'm listening to the way they're narrativizing the story and then at a certain point you know the the husband says well yeah, after, I don't know, after about five or six days of that, I just thought, you know what, I th- we just, just got to put this behind us. You know, I just you know, I just want to put this behind us. I turned to the wife. I said, did you feel similarly? And she's like, yeah, yeah. After a while, you know, you're in a fight for that long. It's just like, what's the point? So for some of you, when you hear that, you might just hear, boy, you know, it sounds pretty bad. But to a narrative therapist, all you see is positive. And what you see, and what I pointed out was, I said, and this is not just blowing sunshine up their butt. This is, this is actual, genuinely seen by me and pointed out. I said, wow, so your love for each other is so so great and so strong deep down, even though you don't express it very much. But it's so great that even after all of that, after all of those insults and all those hurt feelings, you wanted to come back together. You wanted to put that fight behind you so that you could rebuild your relationship. You guys, your your heart must be so, your hearts must be so big and you must have, your love for each other must be so big to be able to withstand so much adversity. And at the end of the day, you still want to work on this. That is, man, you... You're, that is so romantic, I just have to say. Now, I, again, I'm not just blowing sunshine up their ass. I'm not to, trying to deceive them. I'm not trying to spin something. I, it, Once you become trained in strength-based therapy, that's what you see. And when you really see it, you can convince people of that story much more easily than when you don't actually see it. So, if you're interested in strength-based thinking, you really have to practice. It's like mindfulness practice. You got to like do it over and over again. So after I said that, they turn to each other and they smile. <laughs> For the first time, they're like, "Huh? Yeah, I guess that's true. That's uh, I hadn't really thought about it that you know that way before." And now this isn't just you know, that's it. My job is done. This is a small step on a long journey of accentuating strengths. And after accentuating strength after strength, it compels them to repeat those strengths and it compels them to write a new narrative, one that is more positive. So they have more energy to face the adversity that they face. And so that they can give each other more grace through that process. If they see the other person as a collaborator and as a person who cares and who loves them, then they're more likely to give that person more grace and the benefit of the doubt. A lot of couples therapy is getting people to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. When he doesn't come home from work on time, it's not because he hates me and he rejects me and he doesn't want to be with me. Maybe it's because he's really busy at work and he's stressed out. You know, Those kinds of benefits of the doubt are a big deal when it comes to uh, getting along well, and and how you narrativize a situation will determine whether or not you give some of the benefit of the doubt. So it's through these little um, little steps that reauthor people's stories into something new. Like I said, it's complex. Therapy is complex, and narrative therapy is is hard to get, and through my description today, you're not going to understand that. But um, what's the final word of narrative therapy? Final word is it's an elegant theory and I use it all the time and it has powerful interventions. I didn't even really go into some of the powerful, you know, art therapy uses narrative therapy, drama therapy uses narrative. There's a lot of really powerful interventions that you can use. You know, you can have families in session for 10 minutes, all write their life story on a, you know, or even in it with an art project, like narrativize their life story or um, everyone write a story of the fight that you guys had last night and you write it all down and then you analyze that narrative and you, you break it down and you, you really like say, okay, so this is how you want to tell that story. Okay. You know, well, the next time you have a fight, how would you like that story to go? Um, you know, there's all these really interesting story-related, narrative-related interventions that can can be you know really exciting to use. Anyway, so uh, n- let me know what you think, Patron Tim. I hope this was helpful, and anyone else out there, let me know what you think. And particularly if you're a narrative therapist out there, let me know what you think. I know we have Australian and New Zealand patrons. Uh, I'm wondering if you're familiar with Michael White and David Epstein. I'm I'm guessing that you are, and uh, maybe even met him. Actually, I think one of our patrons actually worked with Michael White. Anyway, I'd like to hear what you think. I'm always curious what my patrons think because you're the best. (laughs) And I'm curious what you think. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself. Have awesome narratives because you deserve it.